Hey Dom, uh, thank you for coming in. Uh, you're 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 like a, a prodigy. <laughs> uh, you've been involved since you were a kid into, or when you were very young in in tech, uh, programming tech, uh, programming. In fact, you were uh, one one of the top gaming conferences. With that's something when you're doing in college, which I would, I mean, uh, you're leading this amazing thing, almost like Skunk Works, uh, Next Generation at Lockheed with your own team of engineers <laughs> handling, you know, multi-billion dollar kind of interventions. Uh, you'd be in there as a, as a, almost like a SWAT team coming in and solving problems when something got stuck. And you'd be involved with the ACM, uh, Association of Computing Machinery, which is the number one computing organization in the world. We're actually the largest uh, for many, many, many years. And then of course you've been working in defense projects, uh, uh, working with defense contractors, you have your own company. I mean, what haven't you done, right? So it's pretty remarkable. So thank you for coming in and and a friend as well, a good friend. So thank you for coming in, sharing your uh, views with our audience. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Uh, you've been such a great mentor to me over the years and um, helped me connect to some of the right people, the movers and the shakers in the industry and uh, taught me a lot about technology and companies and business. So I really appreciate um, all that you've done for me over the years and and being your friend for over a decade now, I think. Um, and uh, it's definitely been a journey, but um, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to chat with me today as well. Well, Dom, you know, we, we did an interview before and uh, where, you, where you talked about sort of your journey and that is this, you know, with Lockheed Martin, where you were, driving this next generation of skunk works and, and delivering over a billion in revenue annually. And, and we talked about some of the work you did in college. So I'll, I'll, I'll link to that uh, in the, in the interview. So they have that kind of prior history, but, but you left Lockheed and then you uh, went and worked with various uh, defense contractors where you headed up their applications program. So why don't we get caught up to date on some of that work? And then uh, let's get into Harpoon, this company you started and what you're doing there. So can you talk about uh, post uh, Lockheed and some of that journey? <laughs> sure, sure. Um, Lockheed was was excellent training. You know, it taught me a lot about working for a Fortune 500 company, working for a large business. And, you know, having to operate with all these different arms and legs and, you know, everything involved in running a large corporation. Um, but I was I was abhorrently unpopular there uh, amongst the, the leadership um, and, and, and practically chased out of the company because I was just trying to do disruptive things. And, you know, um, that has problems when, uh, and I mean, now being an executive, I sort of understand their viewpoint a little bit better. But um, at the time, I was just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna light this room on fire and see what happens, you know. Um, and uh, you know, if you're trying to run a large organization, you can't have people lighting rooms on fire. You want to go um, make sure everyone's, you know, keeping their their uh, fire starting equipment in the right safe places. Um, but, you know, I was just trying to disrupt industry and um, build disruptive capabilities and take risks. And to me, there's always sort of a, a roadmap as if I do these things, then this will be the result most likely. And 
it didn't seem as risky in my mind. Um, when I think about the executives at Lockheed that were um, viewing what I was doing at the time, they probably it was probably the equivalent of somebody like building an earthquake device and just turning it on to see what would happen. So um, it just became apparent to me eventually that maybe a large corporation wasn't the place where I should spend the rest of my career because I was just drawn to risk, I guess. And um ended up going and working for a, a small business. Um, they were more focused with the, the Navy. Um, and I knew I knew how to build and scale an organization in a Fortune 500 company, but I didn't know how to scale a small business that didn't have a bunch of name recognition and, you know, a bunch of lawyers, teams of lawyers you could call or anybody that you needed to call to ask a question in the middle of the night, you could feasibly reach out to them in, in a small business. You're, it's usually a small contingent of people who are kind of running the company and, um, you can't typically rely on your brand and your name recognition to scale and get meetings with customers and things like that. So it was a real challenge for sure. And, um, it was a, a challenging environment for me to sort of cut my teeth on business and, um, learn how to scale uh, an organization. So we, I, as part of that group, I was the head of engineering and, um, but I was also pretty much number three in the, the company. So my job was not only engineering, but scaling and dealing with business stuff and winning contracts and negotiating with government and everything in between as, as most people wear a lot of hats in small businesses. So I not only got to design a lot of key systems for the Navy in my engineering hat role, but I also had to win business and win contracts and negotiate contracts and all those things. So we ended up scaling the business from somewhere around five or six million a year when I started to five years later being um, around $70 million. Um, there was some turnaround involved in that business um, and um when I hit the five-year mark, I just realized I'd kind of hit the, the top of the company. So I left and um, worked for another company called Omni Federal that was more Air Force focused. And they were around four or $5 million at the time. And I helped them scale to 60 million in two years. Um, and along the way, you know, like I was just looking for more challenges, like we talked about with risk. So I started my own consultancy and started doing fractional CTO consulting. Um, from some of the skills I learned in those businesses, you know, I learned how to sort of parachute into different companies and uh, figure out what the problems were and do damage control and, you know, get projects and companies sort of on the right path. And those skills really lended well to consulting from a business and technology perspective. And that business kind of took off right away. Um, and then, um, Working with the, the Navy, actually, I just became apparent to me from a uh, DevOps perspective. I got into the DevOps game really early, um, thanks to Lockheed, actually. Uh, and uh, they had this, this project where, um, well, in, in the internal research and development organization of Lockheed, there was this, this shift in like 2012, 2013, maybe, where everyone's going from service-oriented architecture to what's now called the cloud. Um, at the time, there wasn't much 
cloud to speak of. There was, you know, a few managed services from AWS. And in the IRAD community at Lockheed, they spent a, a gajillion dollars this particular year um, manually deploying virtual machines, EC2 instances in AWS, because um, everybody was switching to the cloud. And so during a, a gating review, um, the executives had to watch people manually deploy EC2 instances um, about 9,000 times. Uh, and they freaked out and they put me in charge of the reference architecture implementation for cloud automation for Lockheed, um, which eventually people started calling DevOps. Um, at the time, I thought it was a punishment because I was you know, more in software. Um, and, uh, I was probably deserving of some punishment, but given my antics, um, and, uh, you know, I just, I just started working with containers and, um, you know, cloud automation tools very early on before there wasn't a lot of tools available. And what became apparent to me that it was common sense and that everybody would be doing it in, uh, in a few years. And, um, that's you know, how I've helped scale some of those companies I worked with, you know, bringing some of that DevOps expertise and building those capabilities. Um, anyway, I'm going to stop there, Stephen. There's, there's been a bunch of stuff going on, but uh, I, I think that's a good, good background. That's it, fascinating, right? I mean, uh, you indicated Lockheed, uh, you, you led a team that were looking for areas that needed help. Uh, maybe they got stuck, but that would be considered maybe disruptive <laughs> within a within a, a, a in fact I think they're the world's largest uh, defense contractor as well so and there will be more of a conservative uh, approach and then you come in and and you're looking to fix problems or seeing potential problems and then trying to fix them and so on and and that would create uh, disruption sometimes right make people feel uncomfortable because uh, you'd be saying i see this is, could be an issue and we should go in and fix it um but yet that's valuable later right because you're doing it but then what you did is you learned um, um you gained maturity in the in the way you dealt with people that's that's what i'm hearing right that's so, generous that's generous <laughs> to say that i gained maturity thank you steven so in that maturity, though, you would in your team sometimes maybe have somebody who was like a dom of years ago. And and uh, how would you manage that now? Because you were there's the dom and then you have somebody that's a dom that's not quite reached maturity in there. And they, they work with uh, others on projects. And when you're working with defense projects, you need some stability in there. Right. As well. So how would you manage that? And then we'll get into your company. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a big supporter of people who are really engaged. You know, I think the, the the tricky part about engaged employees is that they can quickly turn into disengaged employees or jaded employees or disruptive employees. If you don't know how to leverage uh, an engaged employee, um, and I, I think that there's a misconception in corporate management about, you know, like, these are the things that I need to do. And this person is like going off over here to the left. Um, and so I just need to steer them over here to the right and get them in line with what everybody else is doing. And that is a completely logical thought, right? But at the end of the day, if somebody's so engaged that they're charting their own course, um, 
it, it is probably not going to be motivating for them to just be put back in a box and say like, just get in line with everybody else. Right. And so that's probably going to exacerbate the problem that you had in the first place, because now they're going to be bored uh, in addition to being engaged and disruptive. Um, and so when I have employees like that, I just try to see where they're going. Like I try to understand like, where are you taking this ship? When are you going to be back? You know, like um, it's kind of like, if, if you have kids and you try to be really strict on them and, you know, you make them go to church every Sunday and you make them say, uh, you know, they have to be in bed by six o'clock and they're not allowed to see their friends and all this stuff. And, you know, like that's all well and good, but eventually those children are going to rebel, you know, like they're going to create problems because you have to give everybody a little bit of, of rope um, and really engage employees need lots and lots of rope. And so what I've, what I've figured out is just, you can talk to them and figure out like, Hey, why are you doing these things? Where are you planning on going with these? Um, and then try to chart the course with them. Um, you can sit down and say like, Hey, listen, I'm doing this thing over here and you're doing this other thing over here. And I definitely need my thing to succeed. Where can we tie those two things together? You know, like, how can you help me over here on the right side while you're doing your thing on the left side? How can you contribute to the right side as you're doing your own thing? And like, where can we meet in the middle? Like what, what is going to be the ultimate goal of these things? And sometimes, you know, like I certainly wasn't perfect when I was a younger engineer, I had lots of things to grow and understand, but I would also say like, if someone was willing to take the time to talk to me and, and show interest in what I was doing, it probably would have been uh, open to changing course, you know, like I, um, it wasn't that I had this one set idea, and I was definitely going to go there. And regardless of any conversation I had, it was I was experimenting, and I wanted to figure out how to connect it to something larger. And so um, sometimes when you talk to somebody, they'll say, Oh, um, you're right. I'm not sure this is relevant to what we're doing. Maybe I'll go work on some other project. Um, and that's fine. Um, and other times you'll find this amazing collaboration opportunity where um, you can find that this is going to really dramatically impact something or be disruptive to the project or capability you're trying to build at some point and say, like, let's work on it together. Um, and we'll meet in the middle at some point in the future, but I also need you to help over here. So like, let's figure that out. Right, so um, what I'm hearing then is you're respecting that other person's point of view. You're listening to that other uh, person's point of view. And in fact, you reiterate their point of view to show that you understand. And then you show the path of where they can converge at some point and yet respecting their, their approach to things and ultimately uh, having it converge so it'll accelerate your project in some way. And as you mentioned, it could enhance it. And, and maybe the word disrupt is a bad word now, but it'll enhance it in some way. <laughs> it'll accelerate it in some way because it's such an exponential idea that could be uh, quite a game changer to what you're doing as well. So I can see how uh, that's a great management uh, process, right? You're, you're working as peers, collaborating, working together to achieve uh, uh, common goals. And, and those could be personal goals, professional goals, but 
ultimately to the big mission goal for the enterprise that you're uh, delivering projects to. At some point, you decided to start this company. So can you talk more about Harpoon and, and why you decided to start this company? And you've laid some of the seeds, right? You said you're working at Lockheed. You could see them going into the cloud. You could see all of this automation or having to repeat things. But if you can automate that, it'll make things so much easier. And you were put in charge of trying to kind of make this more automated. And I, that became the foundation for Harpoon, right? Yeah. So I, uh, very early beginnings, I would say. So um, like I mentioned, I kind of got turned on to DevOps when I was at Lockheed because of a terrible thing that happened in the IRAD community there. Um, and so when I went to my next company, Salute, um, you know, we they weren't even in doing any DevOps at the time. No one was calling it DevOps. There was there was no DevOps. So I wasn't sure what to call it, honestly. And and so I told leadership there, like, we're gonna invest some time in whatever this is called, because in a few years, everyone will be doing it. And you know, to their credit, they said that sounds like a good idea. So um we did, and we got some very early work with the the Navy. And we were able to, um, again, this was at the time, maybe more like 2014, 2015. So um, Docker, you know, started making containers popular in 2011. They weren't popular yet in 2011. They came into existence then. And Kubernetes became a thing from Google Borg in 2013. So these are fairly early timelines on the DevOps spectrum. Um, and so, you know, like a year after Kubernetes, we were working with the, the Navy to completely automatically deploy Kubernetes on Navy ships floating out in the ocean. And uh, it was a cool project because, you know, we were automatically bootstrapping uh, Kubernetes clusters into um, the AWS um, cloud environment for like their shore deployments. And we were um automatically deploying things over you know questionable network links into the middle of the ocean on top of the stack that the navy was running so the navy was actually really innovative in this space and a lot of people don't know about it like years later the air force created this um concept of a software factory and they called the first one that they made um kessel run uh there's like an affinity for star wars in the air force so um and and that that was kind of like a spark that became a roaring fire because you know from there there was um i don't know how many software factories but there's been a lot of them since then and they all have some sort of you know star trek star wars reference um kessel run bespin uh obayashi maru like there are, there's interesting uh mix of of different software factories but what's interesting is the Navy was like the first one to do it. You know, they never really um, uh, moved into that whole software factory phase um, from this initial success story. Um, but that kind of goes along with the story. So, you know, what, what I was finding at the time was there was this belief at the time that all software engineers were eventually going to be well-versed in DevOps. Um, I don't know why everyone believed that, but it was definitely the the mantra of the time. 
And so there was just this general feeling like if I want some DevOps engineers, I'll just go hire some software engineers and they'll magically know DevOps, right? Um, and that um, worked about as well as it sounds when I say it now. So um, it was almost impossible to find any DevOps engineers. Um, nobody had any experience with any of the tools. Um, when I found people even, you know, with, with one year of experience in any of the tools and they worked for me for six months, somebody else was willing to pick them off for 20% more. Um, because now everyone else was looking for DevOps people to like automate deployments. Um, and so I just kind of watched this cycle really early on and I realized it was going to be untenable, this whole DevOps thing, because there was never going to be a point where all software engineers were DevOps experts, just like there's never going to be a point where all software engineers are experts in, you know, artificial intelligence or machine learning, or they're not all data scientists, right? Um, and that it was, it was going to continue to be impossible to find this talent, the, especially the top of the, the pile and, um, to keep them and to pay them enough. And when I moved from project to project and from company to company, that even when we were using exactly the same tools like Terraform and Ansible and Kubernetes and Docker, um, each implementation within that company was a unique snowflake. Um, and I still needed Frank and Bob, you know, to explain to me how they had put their software deployment together. Um, and there was a lot of learning curve, even for companies using the same tech stack, because all of the scripts were entirely different. And so just early on, I said, look, this is a very untenable situation. And these are the scripts that are running the software for entire companies. And the Department of Defense and, you know, other things. And so somebody is going to commoditize DevOps to a degree. Um, I don't know what that looks like, but I should start thinking about it. And that's how Harpoon was born. That's uh, that's fascinating. So how long did it take for you to do this full deployment of Harpoon? What does Harpoon look like? Can you, can you sort of give a a chat GPT description of, <laughs> or a Bing AI description of what Harpoon is? Well, I don't know if I'm as talented as chat GPT and explaining things, but I, um, Harpoon, the best way to think about Harpoon is that it's a no code Kubernetes platform. So um, if you've ever tried to use Kubernetes before, it's a very terminal or command line based experience for the most part. So you have this thing that um, is called cube cuddle uh, or cube control, some people like to call it. Um, and it's just a prompt like chat GBT actually. And, and so like you just type stuff in, except you have to know all the lingo and there's a bunch of keywords like speaking a particular language. Um, a lot of the um, descriptors for telling Kubernetes what to do is in a language called YAML, which actually stands for yet another markup language. Um, and uh it's it's very a lot of it is just very manual um you know like you have to understand a ton of different keywords you have to understand a ton of different commands when you're writing the yaml you have to understand you know like indentations have to be perfect and the wit like you have in the way that yaml works you have like a top layer and then your indented layer and then you can have multiple other indented layers 
and you can put in the wrong word in any of those uh sequences and like everything blows up and dies and you know like there's there's a high degree of potential error in kubernetes certainly people have like written scripts and automated some things and tried to make it easier um even getting kubernetes running has been a pain in the butt for um almost a, a decade now and people have really innovated on on that they've just tried to make it easier to get kubernetes running in the first place you know now um it wasn't the case when i started but now you can go to one of your cloud service providers whichever one you want and you can deploy their particular flavor of kubernetes um fairly easily you know like you follow some commands and you um click some buttons and and do some things and you know like most people can can probably get to that point unfortunately even when you use the the cloud service provider versions of Kubernetes, like EKS for AWS and AKS for Azure and uh, GKE for Google Cloud, um, you still have to know how to use Kubernetes. So it's this whole problem with day two ops is what they call it. After I have the cluster running, how do I use it? And unfortunately, the state of the art in that today is I have to be a master at using Kubernetes and writing YAML and, you know, understand all the keywords in the language and um, how to do everything manually. Um, and so to me, that seems silly. Like um, it should be easy to have your software deployed um, in the cloud or on premise or anywhere you want to put your Kubernetes cluster. And so I endeavored to build a tool that was so easy that you know the pizza guy could use it you could order a pizza and you can come over to your house and you could tell them to drag these things and you know click these buttons and uh eventually you'd have your software deployed in kubernetes in some environment um and i think to a degree we've done it um so we started i started building this tool in my nights and weekends in 2017 and um got a working MVP with Docker Swarm fairly early on. Um, but it was obvious to me that the container, Kubernetes was winning the whole container orchestration war. And uh, we kind of pivoted to Kubernetes somewhere along the way. And um, it uh, is a massive effort to go from working prototype or MVP to enterprise software product. There's just so many nuanced little details in there that you never think of. And it took us quite a while to get to an enterprise software product. Um, but here we are five or six years later, and um, we have quite a few people using the tool and uh, we're seeing quite a, a growth curve and we found a, a vacuum in the, the market still, um, even all this time later and uh, getting a lot of interesting use cases for the tool. So is there some kind of hub that people can contact you on somewhere <laughs> so uh, so they can uh, or some community where they can share lessons and best practices using your tool or uh, um, speaking at these conferences now, et cetera? Yeah. So, I mean, um, you can certainly talk to us on our, our website. We're at harpoon.io. Um, we've been it's been really awesome uh, working with some of the big players in the space. So um, we uh, partnered with Docker and built a Docker extension. So we're in the Docker extensions marketplace and Docker desktop. 
um, which is crazy because they have, you know, millions of active users for Docker desktop. So um, Harpoon is now available on your local desktop environment. And uh, we recently worked with GitHub to be added um, to GitHub's marketplace as an app. Um, and we're not stopping there. So um, we uh, it's it's been really awesome um, working with these different partners and they've um, sort of shown a light on what it is we're offering because I think it is a disruptive capability um, in the marketplace given what the current state of the art is. And when we when we show it to people, you know, like it is it is usually a response of, of disbelief. Um, people will usually say like, "Wow, that's that's pretty amazing," you know. And then they'll say like, "But how do I know it's working?" So we actually had to build a feature entirely for the purposes of proving that it actually works where we could um, harpoon when you're dragging a, a box, an element onto the workspace, it's dynamically generating a bunch of YAML or other scripting or code in the background um, based on whatever it is that you're dragging. So that's one of the major differences between harpoon and, you know, um, Competitors, uh, competitors are usually taking a curated list of software that a lot of people use and they're putting it in a box and you can search for it and you can drag it out, but they've written that stuff manually like most other people. Harpoon, um, as a system dynamically generates the deployment scripting for any piece of software on the planet. Um, so there's not a curated list, it's dynamically doing that. And that's what really makes us disruptive. Um, and so, uh, people didn't believe us. So we had to build this feature that shows when you click a button, uh, the dynamic scripts and YAML that we generate and you can change them and you can uh, click save and it will redeploy dynamically any of the changes as well. So after we built that, people stopped asking us that if it works, but um, you know, it, uh, it wasn't part of our initial roadmap. So, so what's the activity like? Are you getting like one download a, a, a day or something? Or <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's been it's been crazy because um, I would say at the end of last year, I think the biggest, the hardest problem for a startup, um, for a new business, is one of credibility. You know, like big enterprise companies and even bootstrap startups, they don't know who I am and they don't know like what my skill set is or if I'm able to build a good team or a good software product. It's all just kind of faith-based, you know, um, until somebody either runs into a problem and writes us in a horrible um, hate mail or um, somebody just starts using it and they're like, yeah, actually this kind of works pretty good. Um, so from that standpoint, it's it's really hard as a startup or a new company without, you know, like raising some huge VC round or something where somebody's like, yeah, it's probably fine. I'll probably use it because there's a lot of other people that use it to sort of get that credibility and get in there and have people believe that you've built this disruptive product. When we partnered with Docker, I think that was a, a turning point because Docker doesn't just let anybody put... Um, uh, an extension in their marketplace. They sit there, they're like super involved. The team was super awesome. The extensions team when we were working with them and they're, they're, they sit there and they test your app. Like they don't let you put it in the marketplace all willy nilly. They say like, I'm going to try to use it. And if it breaks, I'm going to say no. Right. So 
they, they there's a whole team of Docker that sat there and banged on Harpoon and tried to use it. And uh, I think they were as surprised as everybody else. I don't think they expected it to work. So they were like hitting it. And they're like, this is actually pretty cool. Um, I actually think we really need to put this in our marketplace. It does work. So um, that was really cool to get that validation from such a, you know, a well-known brand in the industry. Um, but once we hit the marketplace, I mean, we did very little, we did like a, a joint blog that we wrote together, which they do with, you know, all of their extensions right now. And, um, definitely there was some activity in the marketplace because they have so many active users, but, um, I mean, in five months we went from probably 20 users to 18,000, um, and, you know, uh, Recently, we've been seeing uh, a trend of getting a thousand new users a week. Um, so the growth curve has been pretty dramatic. Um, and um, obviously, there's been some lessons learned with uh, user experience and things like those along the way, you know, things we didn't um, count on, like somebody getting lost in the, the app and rage clicking 50 times and then, you know, doing something we didn't expect. Um, but we've been able to work with the community of people using Harpoon and they've been super awesome at answering questions and hopping on the calls and, you know, telling us what's working and what's not working. And we really dialed that in and tweaked those things over the last couple of months and even built in a, an interactive tutorial into the, the tool so that the first time or later on, if you decide you want, you know, the, the guided way of using Harpoon. It will take you in step-by-step step how exactly how to deploy things in Kubernetes with our visual interface and how to change things and configure things and set environment variables and do all the things that you possibly can um, in the tool. And we've seen a massive success rate um, with the tutorial. 80% of people that sign up um, decide to go through it. And uh, we see a really high uh, success rate and people finishing the tutorial and getting their cluster up and running. Well, that's great. So you must have videos and stuff on YouTube too, or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah, we do. We do have like a docs page. So like docs.harpoon.io is just where you can go and there's little videos to show you how to do everything. But the interactive tutorial is directly in the tool um, as, as sort of like an extension to the tool. And um, most people get by just with that. So it, it tells you exactly what to do and why you're doing it. Um, and we we don't actually get a ton of support tickets from people who finish the tutorial because they seem to be using it successfully. So um, it used to be, right? You You had to be a DevOps person even when you had an automated tool, ultimately you had to be a DevOps person and really understand it. In fact, you could do it without the automation. Do you think now you can do DevOps with your tool without being a DevOps person? Or do you, do you still need a fair amount of grounding, almost being like an expert? Yeah, that's a fair question. I think um, we're seeing... Uh, so there, there's there's a few different types of people that use our tool. Um, some of them are people who have gone through the pain of standing up a Kubernetes cluster and maintaining them. And the response from those people is fun because they they say typically like, 
this is a huge pain and like it's really easy to use your tool and why would i go through that pain if i could just use your tool right um and then there's other people who are just more they've never really gone through the devops ecosystem but they're software developers and they really understand software and we find those people are very successful using the tool and they said they say things like um you know, I'm really glad this this tool is out there because I didn't want to learn all of this stuff. Um, and I mean, I think that's that that mentality sounds lazy, but I think it's really comes from a place of efficiency. Like software engineers, there's a lot that's asked of them. You know, like I need all these features built. I need them pushed, you know, tomorrow. Um, and a way to get there faster that they know is going to work and is going to be fairly easy and not involved is like a big efficiency gain for most software engineers. But what's been most interesting is the no code type user that we've run into. And I don't think we ever really expected to be so popular with the no code, low code community, but there's an entire new, especially with generative AI and chat GBT, like there's this whole huge new market of people who are building applications who have no software background, definitely no DevOps background, um, and they're building capabilities that probably would have been impossible even three to five years ago. Um, so they're using tools like Noodle and Bubble um, and a lot of other tools that have kind of come to market. Um, I mean, the the best and worst parts of those tools is they're very prescriptive in the way that you can use them mostly. Um, because by being prescriptive, they can keep you in a more contained box and they can have you have more success uh, by saying like, these are the things that you can do. Um, but, you know, like a larger number of people can get through that and, and be successful. Um, but, you know, now people want to use OpenAI, right? They want to use the APIs from OpenAI to go use generative AI to solve their problems. Um, and there's no, at least not yet, there's no like box in these tools that like you just hook into the open AI API or other things like that. So they're going out and they're like finding tutorials or they're going into chat GPT and asking them to like find, build them Docker files, you know, to do things or write code. And then they're like throwing that into a, a container image or figuring out like these tutorials on the internet, which I think is awesome, by the way, like that people without software backgrounds are being successful in building actual software applications and kind of just going out and finding the information they need on the internet and making it work. I think there's going to be a huge number of new businesses that are operating in this way where actual founders, even non-technical founders are building tools and applications and services and capabilities that um, just don't exist today and without even going and hiring a software development team, just kind of making it work. And um, so they need a place to host the software that they're running and they're reading about Kubernetes and all these things. And then they're sort of like going through the Kubernetes story and they're like, okay, that's, that's pretty involved. Um, and they're actively going out and finding in their searches Harpoon and saying like, this is what I've been looking for. I needed a way to deploy this stuff easily. And uh there's a large amount of our user base that are these particular users that are just kind of trying to make it work. Um, so it's been really interesting figuring out the different types of users to use the platform and, and finding out that in fact, there are lots of users that are using it that have no software background or no DevOps background.
Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. Or or people who who've been coding for like sixty years, <laughs> like I have, and you know used to code in uh, machine language and then assembler and C and things like that, and then higher level languages. And uh, I'm curious now. I probably should take a few weeks off, sort of, so continue what I'm doing, and just start poking around with all of these automation or uh, visual tools that are out there. Uh, so let's say for us kind of seasoned guys who who used to code in machine code and then move to assembler and then C and so on, um, what languages would you suggest we look at other than like Copilot from IBM or from uh, Microsoft? You know, you, you have these uh, GitHub tools, but you have uh, Copilot and uh, and these uh, and these uh, code generator kind of capabilities. For 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 us who have some fundamental skills, but now want to re-enter to kind of bring our skills up, what languages would you recommend? Yeah, I mean, I'm a firm believer that uh, software developers should choose the right tool for the job. You know, so um, there's no one perfect language that really. Uh, solves all problems. I think, you know, typically a lot of what I find is that when people are trying to solve data science problems these days, um, so machine learning models and um, analytics and, and things like that, um, you know, Python really has a, a ton of support for those type of things. And it's a pretty fun language to write. Um, so um, that's usually what I recommend in, in those cases. I mean, I've, if you're trying to build a web application these days. Um, a lot of people are using React or Angular. A lot of they're le leaning towards the mean stack or the Mern stack. Um, and so um, it, it's interesting because, you know, in some ways these web frameworks like React and Angular really do make things easier. And in other ways, they make things super complicated. You know, like I remember I was writing uh, a website when I was 12 in HTML. And uh, like, if I want to put a link, an anchor tag, right, in, in a website, it's like one line of code. And I was like, ahref equals blah, 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 right? Um, it's like 30 lines of code in Angular. Like, I don't... <laughs> uh, you need to like import a bunch of stuff as a dependency and uh, do all this stuff. So um, yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. Um, but Overall, like there's a lot of benefits to using those frameworks, like especially cross-browser compatibility and and things like that. Um, and I mean, even things like Ruby, like Ruby is a really interesting language. Um, I think it gets a bad rap because Rails didn't used to be super scalable from a web framework standpoint, but um, it's more human readable. And I think it's really good for beginners um, and people to pick up. I forced my wife to go through a coding tutorial with Ruby one time and she's super smart anyway, but um, you know, she's just breezing through everything. Like, um, and so um, I think you'll see at some point, like, while the average software developer may never be a DevOps expert, like the average person will probably be, have some proficiency in code. Um, uh, and certainly some of it will be using these no code platforms or tools. Some of it will be um, using visual tools to do things, perhaps like Harpoon. But um, ultimately, I think as the tools become more accessible, generative AI becomes more accessible, 
um, more people will build tools and it will force more people to like go out and explore learning different languages more. Um, and whether you're a, an expert that's been doing it for a long time, that's going back to it, or you're somebody who's, you know, in high school trying to make something work. So you don't trying to build a, a lawnmower that, you know, automatically mows lawns or whatever using, um, AI, uh, you know, ultimately the population is going to be pushed towards being a software developer. And I think that's, that's really awesome. I think it will propel us into the future. Do you use things like Visio Studio? Have you played with that recently or, or it's been a while? I, I use, um, the, uh, God, what's it called? The, I use WebStorm for a lot of my web application development. I don't, everybody else on my team uses Visual Studio. Though. So, I mean, that's one of the more popular IDs out there. It's all it's all very preference based, I think. But um, it is it is cool to see some of these um, capabilities getting tied directly into IDEs, like you're talking about. So you know the Codex model and um, how you know GitHub ha GitHub has this capability to like do code completion and use generative AI to write code, I think is super awesome. Um, I would suggest that at the moment, the state of the art is you still need a software degree in a lot of cases to write with it. Um, it's about asking the right questions and being able to validate whatever it's producing um, actually compiles and works um, and is what you wanted. Um, uh, I think validation is the key, right? So I can ask generative AI to write me some code and it will definitely write me some code. In most cases, it will probably compile and do something. Question is like, does it do the thing that I want it to do? And that is the, the key, right? Is that validation. So as models get more reformed and mature and um, we can more closely validate the intent of what the person who prompted the generative AI for with the um, completion of the loop, um, creating something that we validate is the right thing, um, then you know the, the tools will become more streamlined and more used. And I think what's interesting is a lot of people don't realize like that's a problem today, even doing it the manual way, right? Like people will come talk to software developers and we'll, they'll say like, these are the things that I want. And then you know the software developers will build them and was like, here you go, here's what you asked for. And then a lot of people say, this is what I wanted, right? Uh, so that's that's even hard for humans to do uh, and to, to like have the conversation and say like, this is definitely what you wanted with all the features you wanted and all the things. Because quite frequently in the software community, and this has existed since there were software engineers, software engineers don't fully... And it's not because we're not sociable and we don't understand people like there's not that's a a false perception, right? It's, it's just because it's hard for you to convey an idea from your mind into my mind and me to build it and us to end up and agree that this is what we both wanted. So just a, a couple more questions. Uh, I mean, what's your experience then using these large foundation models for code generation? Um, have you done a fair amount? I started playing with it just to see what it's, uh, you know, what the output is like. Is it, is it fairly decent or not? Or yeah, yeah, I've, I've, um, I've experimented a little. Um, some of the software developers at Harpoon they like to like go ask ChatGPT questions when they don't know the answer instead of searching Google. So, 
certainly there's a lot of um, utility there as far as like a better search engine. Um, perhaps you have to be a little careful because sometimes you don't get the right answer. Um, but, um, you know, if you have some basis in a field, then you can usually um, get a lot of utility out of that. I find that um, the generative AI models have some of the same problems with writing code that they do with writing blogs. You know, like if I go to ChatGPT and I say, like, write me a thousand word blog post on um, puppies chasing balls, you know, like it'll probably like a, a thousand word blog post about puppies chasing balls, but it will be a terrible blog and it won't be very engaging. It'll be very high level and sort of meh, you know? And so um, from the same process, if I go to ChatGPT and tell it, uh, um, you know, use the Codex model to um, create me a med tech web application, um, maybe it will spit one out. I don't know, but, you know, it's probably not going to have any real use um, or utility. Um, and so meanwhile, if I go back to uh, the tool and prompt it to say like, you know, here's a bunch of questions. And I mean, most people who are using the tool um, significantly are doing these things anyway, but um, I start prompting it to give me the right questions. And then I, um, you know, get granular in what I'm asking for. And I ask for details about the thing. And then the difficulty with that is like, there, there is some requirement on the user to understand the right questions to ask and how to validate what the output is. And so the same thing is true for the codex model, right? Like um, if I can ask for a specific function with a specific output and um, I can be very granular in my description of what I want, inputs and outputs, um, and what it's supposed to be doing, then I can probably get a pretty good base uh, for an individual function. But I'm still going to have to know um, after that, like, how do I validate it? How do I make it um, sure it's the thing that I want? And I'm going to have to do that for every function inside of the class or the object that I'm trying to build. And I'm going to do that, you know, a hundred more times for all the other classes that I need in my enterprise application. So I, I see it as a way to gain efficiency, especially as things um, move into the future. Um, but you still need sort of some of the, the right background today to be effective. Yeah, and it's getting better, right? From GPT-3 to 3.5 uh, Turbo to GPT-4, and then all of these plugins. I mean, I did try, uh, you know, you, you have Auto-GPT. I was playing with Auto-GPT, and I was thinking, well, that's kind of cool <laughs> uh, what it, what it's doing. But there's this, you know, Smart GPT, and there's Langchain and Hugging Face, and there's Code Interpreter. I thought Code Interpreter is a really interesting plugin uh, for ChatGPT. I use Bing a lot, uh, Bing AI, and uh, play with that quite a bit. In fact, probably use it every day now. Uh, used to be maybe once a little while, I used to, but now every day I, I, you know, I use it. I use it on my phone, things like that. So I'm, I'm becoming more reliant, uh, or I, it, it's augments, but like you say, you have to validate, you have to make sure, but it seems to be getting better, right? The system, yeah. it seems to be better um, built in. And then there's these, uh, I caught Andre Kaparthi's uh, keynote, and I thought he had some really great points about, he talked about chain of thought and uh, uh, tree of thought. He talked about uh, reflection and 
uh, self-consistency and then the use of plugins and things like that to increase your your kind of the accuracy of these systems. So I think it's all fascinating. So, um, okay, one, one final question. Uh, you know, what's your recommendation to the audience? <laughs> Recommendations to the audience. Um, I think being on topic here um, is to experiment with technology, you know, like, so um, there's so much out there now. Um, don't think that uh, software is, you know, specific to one class of people or people with computer science degrees, like go out and, and uh, experiment with stuff, use the no coding platforms, mess around with ChatGPT or, or Bing's tool. Uh, from Microsoft and like try to write some code and see what happens. Like um, what's the worst that could possibly happen. Um, and uh, you know, use, use Harpoon to deploy it when you do. But uh, <laughs> at, at the end of the day, like I I'm really excited to see everybody's ideas actually become reality. That's one of the, the great blessings that you can have as a software developer. Like I can sit down at my laptop in the morning and I can build something out of ones and zeros out of electrons you know and bring something into existence that didn't exist before and that way you know i consider myself like an architect or a, a builder right and um not everybody gets that satisfaction every day um that they can just sit down and manifest something out of electrons um and the, the bar to enter is getting lower all the time you know and in part because of these no code tools in part because of generative AI and um, you know um, now is the time like don't don't wait for it to be uh, you know just something uh, you think a thought and the software appears on the screen like I think uh, you know anybody can build software these days if they put in a little bit of effort and, and time and it's a really rewarding feeling to be able to sit down and, and say like show people and say like, this is something I built um, and you should try it. So what I'm hearing is stick your toe into this, uh, your toe into this ocean of possibilities and then take a full swim because uh, all of that creativity and opportunity and tools and resources are there just for you to discover. And then you can dream away and create, right? <laughs> Uh, so and, and have fun doing it as well right so <laughs> yeah I think you'd be surprised at what you can accomplish well thank you again Don for coming in you know you got this amazing career and you, you got this uh, fantastic uh, company Harpoon who's uh, you know doing amazing things and uh, you're continuing to build and at some point it may be I'll ask you for an interview and you'll say no I, I'm taking my private jet somewhere so I, I'm <laughs> <laughs> never Stephen. never I always make time for you thanks so much for having me on your your show today and uh, it's really great to catch up and, and chat a little bit and uh I look forward to the the next thing you're going to teach me when it shows up so uh take care and all the best so thank you again <laughs> thanks Stephen. thank you for listening to the brand called you videocast and podcast platform that brings you knowledge, experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called you.